Colossians chapter 1. We've been making our way steadily through this powerful little epistle, and we've made it down to verse 12. Remember, the theme of our study is complete in Christ. We'll be starting in verse 12 in a moment. This message title today is Gospel Gratitude. But I want to remind you of an event that has probably been lost in the history, but it happened in 1860. There was a terrible accident that occurred on Lake Michigan. It was near the campus of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. But late one night, a vessel departed from Chicago called the Lady Elgin. And she was boarded with 350 travelers, and they were going to make their way from Chicago to Milwaukee across Lake Michigan. And as they made their way through the night, they were to arrive early the next morning, but the ship ran into a powerful storm and gale force winds. Now, the Lady Elgin wasn't the only ship having difficulty making headway in that storm. For we're told that in the pre-dawn hours there was a smaller vessel named the Augusta. She was also tossed and turned by the squalls. And in the chaos of that storm, the Augusta lost control and rammed into the side of the Lady Elgin. And of course the ship began to take on water. The lifeboats were ordered to be lowered, but the water was coming in so fast that it was nearly impossible to salvage the lives on board. And the tragic story of that is that 300 lives were lost in that collision. But there were a few who were rescued. You see, standing on the shore early that morning was a seminary student by the name of Edward Spencer. He watched everything transpire from the shore and he decided in that moment it was time for him to act. And so he took a rope and he tied it around his waist, and he tied the other end of the rope to a tree near the shore, and he went out into the frigid waters, and one by one, he brought those bobbing souls, drowning in Lake Michigan, he brought them back to the shore, and amazingly, this one man was able to save 17 lives from drowning. Of course, we're told that during the rescue, Edward Spencer sustained permanent damage to his body, and Due to his heroics, he became an invalid for the rest of his life. But here's the real tragedy of all that. Some years later, a reporter was doing a story about Spencer's heroics. And in the interview, the person doing the reporting there discovered that of those 17 whom Edward Spencer had rescued from the icy waters that evening, not one of them, not one of the 17 ever came back to tell him, thank you. No one ever expressed a word of gratitude to this man who paid dearly to save others. And as I read that story, I thought to myself, hmm, how must God feel on a daily basis? You see, each day God gives humanity life and strength. He keeps the earth perfectly spinning in the warmth of the sun. God sends rain to douse our lands and replenish our crops. He even gives us little creature comforts like sweet honey on a buttery biscuit. Amen? That's the goodness of God. 
God is even so gracious that He will give the atheist the air that he needs to curse him. And yet God has provided a rescue, hasn't He? God sent His Son. He is our lifeline. He is our deliverance that brings us from the sea of sin and doom onto the shores of life eternal. How tragic it would be for us to have been pulled from certain death and yet live with ingratitude in our heart. Live bitter. Live unthankful. And that's why God makes a big deal about thanksgiving. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find there are numerous references of the attitude of gratitude pertaining to the Christian life, especially as you study the letters of Paul, which is remarkable because this man spent a lot of time in dark dungeons. He spent a lot of time licking the wounds of his body. He did not have an easy road, and yet this man's heart, as you read his letters, was so filled with joy and thanksgiving. You remember that story in Acts chapter 16, where he and uh, Silas are there in the Philippian jail, nothing better to do, so he turns to brother Silas and says, hey, why don't you shake them chains and give me a good beat? And they start singing, and they brought the house down as God sent the earthquake. You just thought Elvis wrote the jailhouse rock. But the Apostle Paul, a man who lived with thanksgiving in his heart, and we might say that that thanksgiving translated into thanks living. That's the life that we're called to live. I'm thinking about that old song that says, I'm reaping better than I sowed because I'm drinking from my saucer. My cup has overflowed. Amen? Amen. Now in the verses that we've been exploring here in Colossians 1, last week we read from verse 9 down to verse 11. And we noticed that Paul has launched into a prayer. He's been praying on behalf of these Colossian believers and by the time we come to verse 12, he starts breaking out in thanksgiving over the gospel. And that's the title of our message today, Gospel Gratitude. And as we study this prayer, as Paul wraps up here, verses 12 through 14, we're going to notice at least three things that every Christian can be thankful for. Every day we can turn our face toward the one who rescued us from sin and death and at least give him thanks for these things, no matter what our circumstances in life may be. So what are these reasons for gospel gratitude? Well, number one is this. Give thanks for the promise of our inheritance. Give thanks for the promise of our inheritance. Read with me verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, watch this, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, every blood-bought child of God has been qualified to receive the riches of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a part in the message where you should say, Amen. It doesn't matter what your bank account says. doesn't matter about your net worth. I'm telling you, spiritually speaking, according to the Word of God, you are a spiritual millionaire. You qualify today for the promise of an inheritance. Now, if you've ever gone to the bank to get a loan, you understand what it means to qualify. 
or perhaps even to be disqualified for a loan. The bankers, they look at all these markers in your life. They look at your income. They look at your credit score. Uh, they look at other to determine whether you fit their criteria, whether you qualify to get a loan. Now, if you and I were to stand before the living God in our sinful state without Jesus Christ, apart from His mercy and grace, we could never on our own good works qualify for the presence of God. Amen? The Bible says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that even on our best day, even our righteousness is to Him as filthy rags. I've said it before that there is no clever arrangement of rotten eggs that will ever make a good omelet. doesn't matter how you might rearrange your life, your good works, no matter what spices or good things you might put into the formula, present it to a holy God and to Him it's not enough. But I'm thankful today through the grace and the mercy of our God that we qualify for heaven not based on what Derek McCarson has done, but based upon what Jesus Christ has done. Now, there's something amazing that happened at the cross of Christ. Paul says here, you're qualified to share in that inheritance. What is it? Well, what happened at the cross was a divine transaction took place. And I have a slide here to show you. Notice what happened in the cross. A divine transaction where my sin, my guilt, my burden, my judgment was placed upon Jesus Christ. It was imputed to Him. And in return, in exchange for faith in Christ, what is imputed back to me is the perfect, sinless life and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that is a deal like none other. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that He, that's God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the term that we like to use in theological circles called justification. It's to be declared righteous. It's to be qualified in Jesus to stand in the holiness of God and receive the riches of those who are in His forever family. Amen? Justified, it's to be treated by the Father just if I'd never sinned. Amen? It also qualifies us to be the recipients of an inheritance that is out of this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 is a good segue, a good parallel verse to study alongside Colossians 1 and verse 12. Notice the same theme of the inheritance. He, verse 3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, watch this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and watch, kept in heaven for you. Friend, the thieves can't get to it. The rust and the moth can't get to it to rust and decay. It's held imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It never loses its value. It isn't determined by what is happening in the stock market or who's in the White House. It's good by the guarantee of God and the word of His Son who cried out from the cross to tell us, die, it is finished. 
Now, there's at least three aspects of this inheritance. You say, well, what does all this entail? Oh, friend, if I had all morning. Let me just unpack for you at least three things involved in this promise of inheritance as a guarantee from God. Well, one of the elements of this is an indestructible resurrection body. Amen? Because He lives, we shall also live, but in an upgraded model. An ageless, deathless, sinless, limitless body like that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 17 says this, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. And the older you get, the more aches and pains you have, the more that, that arthritis creeps into your body, the more times that you have to write down when the doctor's appointment is going to be, the longer that your medication list gets, doesn't it make you long for the new body? Amen? It's like the old story that I heard about a man who went into McDonald's one day. And as he went into McDonald's, he noticed a peculiar sight over in the corner. He said that there was a, a little elderly couple, older couple over there by themselves, enjoying a lunch. But there was something strange. He said that this, this couple, they only had one hamburger, one French fry, and one Coke. And he watched this old man. They opened up the package, cut the hamburger in half, slid one half over to his wife. He took another half, poured out those fries, put half of them over on her side and half on his side. Then he op opened that straw and put two straws in that Coke, one for him and one for her. And this man was curious. He walked up. To the elderly couple. He said, I, 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 I'm not trying to be nosy, but I just noticed. Uh, my heart is touched by this, what I see here. And if you don't have enough money to buy a full meal so that each of you can have a meal, I'd be willing to buy you a Big Mac or whatever you want on the menu so that you don't have to share. And the old gentleman, he explained. He said, no, 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 sir. He said, we're fine. You see, this is how... We've done things for years and years. and said, In fact, he said, this right here, what we're doing, is the secret to a long marriage. This is how come me and my wife have been able to be married for 60 years. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, notice how we're doing things. This is the secret right here. You, to be fair and to split everything down the middle. 50-50. Be fair. 50-50. Well, as he was telling that, the man looked over he noticed the little old lady who was sitting there wasn't eating her food was getting cold and he turned to her and he said he said ma'am are you okay why why aren't you eating about that time the old man started to maneuver in his mouth and he pulled out some dentures he handed it over to his wife she put them in and she said i'm waiting on my teeth <laughs> see what i'm talking about splitting everything 50 50 an indestructible resurrection body Amen, it's coming. No dentures needed. No hair transplant. None of the doctor visits we have to do. A cancerless, deathless, ageless, limitless body because of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. An indestructible resurrection body. How about this? An incredible role. You know, I'm tired of people saying, why do you want to go to heaven? Heaven's going to be boring. No, friend. Why would you want to stay here? The only ones who's going to be boring in heaven would be us. Why would God want anything to do with us? 
God is the uh, fountainhead, the inventor of everything that's good and lovely and beautiful. He's the source of all joy. And I'm telling you, he's got an incredible role planned for every child of God. Jesus said that the meek would inherit the earth in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. That looks forward to his millennial reign where he sets up a kingdom of perfect peace and prosperity on the earth. And then if you go to the seven letters at the uh, onset of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, notice the role that Jesus has for his saints in his future kingdom. Revelation 2 and verse 26, The one who conquers and keeps my works unto the end, to him, watch this, I will give authority over the nations. You talk about a role. And then chapter 3 and verse 21, The one who conquers, watch this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Friend, if I can just be a doorkeeper, if I could just be a janitor, somebody who sweeps and cleans in the kingdom of Jesus, that'll be good enough for me. But he says, you're going to help me rule and reign over this earth. Wow, that's an inheritance. Resurrection body, an incredible role. And then notice this, an indescribable residence. John 14, in my father's house are... Many rooms, if it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. He's been gone for almost 2,000 years. Friend, if he built the whole universe in six days, imagine what he's been able to do in some 2,000 years for the home that you and I are going to inhabit one day. I love the song that the Primitive Quartet sings. My home sits by a crystal stream on a street of gold. Nothing down here can compare to its beauty, I've been told. It'll never need repairing. It will last eternally. My house ain't much to look at, but my home's a sight to see. That's part of that inheritance that Paul is rejoicing over in this passage. And friend, the more that I go through this world... The more that things get corrupt, the more that I see things heading toward an end time scenario where one man is going to rule the world called the Antichrist, the more hope that I lose in this world, heaven is looking better and better every day. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I think about that story that Erwin Lutzer told in one of his books. This is a great story that he told. He said that, there was a wealthy couple once who had a son that they dearly loved. And in this wealthy couple in their home, they were able to employ like a nanny or a housekeeper. And this nanny, this housekeeper, spent a lot of time with their son, taking care of him, helping him with his schoolwork, getting him dressed, feeding him, those kinds of things. And a disaster struck one day. This family happened... And to be a part of an accident. And the whole family died in, in one tragedy. And Erwin Lutzer said that the wealthy family was in a turmoil because they could not find a living will. They couldn't find a will to, to what, know what to do with the inheritance, with all of the wealth that this man had accumulated. And so it went to the banks. And the decision was made to auction off all the possessions of this wealthy man to the highest bidder. Well, that housekeeper that I talked about, that housekeeper, 
She attended the auction not because she was wealthy and she could afford any of their priceless artifacts, but because she loved their son. And she went to the auction and she said, there was a painting there hanging in that house of the boy. I want to put a bid in for that. If I can have that painting, then I at least have one memory left over from my time serving this family. Well, they started auctioning off all the possessions, great furniture and uh, pieces uh, that should have been a, a museum and cars and so on down the list. And when the auctioneer came to the portrait of the son, nobody bid on it except that little housekeeper. And she got it for just a dollar or two. And when the woman got the picture home, she turned it backwards and noticed that on the back was a piece of paper. And she opened that piece of paper, and it happened to be the Father's last will and testament. And do you know what it said written on it? It said, I will all of my inheritance to anyone who loved my son enough to purchase this picture. And friends, that's what God the Father says. Anyone who loves my son and accepts him and lives for him, to him belongs all the riches, all the inheritance. What belongs to the heavenly Father belongs to the Son. And what belongs to the Son, he gives to the saints of God, the church, in Jesus Christ. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also graciously give us all things? So you can understand why Paul was full of thanksgiving as he wrote verse 12. Because he looked forward into his heavenly portfolio and said, Ha ha ha! Look at what's coming to the child of God. Give thanks for the promise of our inheritance. Then notice verse 13. He says, give thanks for the permanence of our immigration. The permanence of our immigration. Read verse 13. You'll see what I mean by that. Watch this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Here it is. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Paul's idea is this. Christ, like a conquering king, has come in to the domain of Satan. And through Christ's work on the cross, he has freed us from the cruel taskmaster of Satan. And he has brought us as his captives back in to live under his rule in his kingdom of light. That's the image there. Think of the Exodus story, if you will. Just as God delivered the Israelites from the cruel hand of Egyptian bondage, so too Jesus has come in and delivered us from the devil's domain. Amen? We've been immigrated, we've been transferred from one kingdom into another. Now according to this verse, those who know Jesus have changed their citizenship. How many of you are dual citizens here today? Amen? What do I mean by that? I mean that you are an American by first birth, but you are a child of God and a citizen of heaven by the second birth. You're a dual citizen. You live under the laws of this country, but really your home is heaven, and that's what dictates the hope of your heart. So the citizen of heaven no longer serves the cruel taskmaster of sin and Satan. We now live in a new kingdom. 
we abide by a new set of rules. We have a fresh desire, a heartbeat for the things that God longs for because we're serving a different king. The King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And when He transferred me out of that domain of darkness into His kingdom of light, I changed jerseys. I went from the losing team to being on the winning side. Amen? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Another good parallel passage. Look at what the Bible says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who, watch this, called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen? Because we have been transferred from the dark into the light, some things have changed, haven't they? Because we're living in a new kingdom we don't go to the old places where we used to hang out. The old people that used to be our friends, they're not really one with us anymore. We don't hang around them much anymore. The old things that we used to go to to find pleasure and fulfillment, they no longer hold the same sway in our life because our hearts have been changed and our lives have been transformed. Your walk is different. Your talk is different. Your worldview is different. You're not walking in the same way as the world. You don't think like the world. You don't love the things of the world. Your whole orientation has now been shifted because you had scales on your eyes. You had chains on your hands. You wore the robes of death, but now you wear the robes of royalty clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He unlocked those shackles and threw them away. He gave you a new future and restored your past. He put hope in your heart. He, he, he put joy in your soul. He gave you a song to sing. He even gave you new friends as you go to the house of God. You've made a new group that you can rejoice with and walk together through the valleys of life all the way to heaven. Friend, that's what it means to be immigrated into a new country. Everything's different now. Card-carrying, Bible-toting, saved, blood-bought, redeemed, heaven-bound with the gearbox down. Amen? James Gray was a missionary to the island of Madagascar. He said that as he served there as a missionary, that they had a custom in the church that he pastored there among those Madagascar people that when somebody came to know Jesus Christ, at their baptism, that person was required to give a testimony. Aren't y'all glad I don't make everybody do that here? But he, this missionary had this custom where somebody got saved and they come to be baptized. He would ask them, Sir, ma'am, what led you to become a Christian? And then they would have to give an explanation for their faith. He tells a story in his writings that he was getting ready to baptize a man who had been known to be quite a drunkard and a womanizer. He was not a good guy, but... He'd gotten saved, gloriously saved. And they were there to baptize him in the river. And he asked him that question. He said, Sir, what is it that led you to become a Jesus follower? 
said the man stood there for a moment, silent, in that muddy water, knee-deep. Looked around on the shore, and he saw the faces of the church that was surrounding him. He pointed to one man in the crowd. He said, I knew that guy. He used to be a thief. Pointed to another fella. I know that fella. He used to be a drunkard. I know that guy over there. He was very cruel to his wife. He was a wife beater, and he deserted his family for a while. But he said, as I observed their life, I noticed that they all changed. Something was different about them. The drunk man put down his bottle. The adulterous man went back to his family. The one who was a thief started making a living by his honesty in his hands. And the man, as he stood there in the river to be baptized, he said, as I looked upon those men and I saw their lives change, I realized if Jesus can do that for them, what can he do for me? And they took him under and brought him up. Friend, that's what it means to be immigrated from darkness into light. Amen? If Jesus is in your life, something ought to be different. Amen? Well, there's a third reason for gospel gratitude this morning. We give thanks because of the promise of our inheritance. Number two, we give thanks because of the permanence of our immigration. And then number three, we give thanks for the pardon of our iniquities. The pardon of our iniquities. Now I'm going to define some terms here. Maybe you've heard your whole life in church, but they've never really been defined. We preachers are good for that. We toss around theological words like a football, and we never take time to actually dig in and define what they mean. Paul uses two words in verse 14 that are very important to understanding what it really means to be saved. He closes his stanza of praise, and he reminds us to be thankful because Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Because I owed a debt that I could not pay. Look what he says in verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We see two facets here of what it means to be saved. First, Paul uses that word redemption. Redemption speaks of the payment for sin rendered. The payment for sin rendered. To redeem means to purchase or set free by paying a price. The price paid was called the ransom fee. Now in Paul's time, you need to understand where this came from. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And the slave trade was huge in Paul's day. People were bought and sold like objects in a flea market. But there was a custom in Paul's day where you could buy a slave and if you so chose as the owner, you could set that slave free. You could purchase them from the slave market and give them their license to be free. And Paul says, that's what Jesus Christ did for you and I when He cried out, it is finished. He paid the fee. With the price of His own blood, Jesus bought us off the slave block of sin and gave us a new life. Listen to what Peter says. Another great parallel verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed by perishable things such as silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, watch this, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, look, 
you didn't get this because you were good. You didn't get this because you deserved it. You didn't get this because you prayed the right way or did the right religious ritual. You didn't get this because of the behavior of your grandparents and how holy they were. You didn't get this because you gave a certain amount of money, attended a certain church, called yourself under a certain denomination. You got this because somebody came along and paid a fee and set you free. There was a Bible translator in West Africa. He was trying to convey the meaning of the word redeem into the Bambra language. He was translating the Bible from English into this recipient language, the Bambra language, so that the people could understand. He came to the word redeemed. And because the Bambra language did not have a one-for-word translation, he struggled. How do, I, how do I make this concept redeemed? How can I express it in the native tongue such that the people will understand it? So he asked one of his African assistants. He said, how would your people express the meaning redemption? Oh, he said, well, that's easy. We would use this phrase. God took our head out of the collar. He said, what? How does that explain redemption? God took your head out of the collar. And then the African gave this story. The man told him that many years ago, some of his ancestors had been captured by slave traders, chained together and driven to the seacoast. Each of the prisoners had a heavy iron collar, like the one pictured there, around the neck. As the slave passed through the village, if a chief noticed a friend among those captives, the chief could pay the slave traders in gold, ivory, silver, or brass, and the collar would be removed, and the prisoner would be set free. Do you see the Bible image there? Once I was led by a cruel taskmaster named Satan. I had no power. I could not resist where he wanted me to go and what he wanted me to do. He drugged me around because I was a slave of sin. But praise God, one day Jesus Christ paid the price. He came, unlocked the collar, got my head out and said, Now, son, you're living for me. That's the Bible image. So give thanks for the pardon of your iniquities. That's redemption. But then he moves on and mentions this last phrase, forgiveness. The forgiveness of sin. That speaks of the penalty of sin removed. So the payment is made. The penalty is removed. Now that word forgive means to carry away. And it has its roots in the Old Testament. It reminds us of something in Leviticus 16 called the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement was the holiest day of the year on the Hebrew calendar. It was the day, only day on the calendar, where the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice of blood on the mercy seat, thus making atonement for the sins of the people for a whole year. Before he did that, what happened, according to Leviticus 16, is that two goats were brought to the entrance of the tabernacle or the temple. Both were spotless and pure. The priest went to the throat of one of those goats and he slit the throat. The blood was drained. It was 
captured in a container which the priest would then take in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. The picture there is being covered by the blood of a substitute. Then the other goat that was left alive called the scapegoat. The priest would then take his hands, place it on the head of the goat, thus a picture of the transfer of the sin of the people, of the whole nation, to the animal. And then the animal was let free into the wilderness. A picture of the, 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 the freedom or the sending away of that burden, that debt paid. So the substitute received the punishment and the scapegoat received the pardon and was set free. That's what forgiveness is all about, to have the penalty removed. That's a picture of what God in Christ Jesus has done for you and me. He's taken our sin, our shame, our guilt. He's placed it on Jesus Christ. He died the death that I should have died, received the judgment that was due my works, and instead I get set free. What a picture. Friend, if you can't be thankful for those things, <laughs> I don't know how to help you. Donald Whitney wrote this in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, and I'm almost done. Listen to what he said. This is so powerful. He said, quote, God has never done anything greater for anyone, nor can He do anything for you than bring you to Himself. Suppose He put $10 million in your bank account every morning for the rest of your life, but He didn't save you. Suppose He gave you the most beautiful body and face of anyone who'd ever lived, a body that ever, never aged for a thousand years, but then at death, He shuts you out of heaven and into hell for eternity. What has God ever given anyone that could compare with the salvation He has given you as a believer? Do you see, He says, there is nothing God could ever do for you or give you greater than the gift of Himself. If we cannot be thankful to Him, who is everything and whom we have everything, what then, friend, will make us grateful? I'm like you. I'm human. There are days when the Christian life is impossible. When it seems like the burden is too heavy, the discouragement is too deep, and I get down just like you get down. But you know what I have to do? When I feel like giving up and throwing in the towel and saying, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore, Lord. I can't take it one more day. You know what I have to do? I turn off the TV. I shut my phone down. I get alone with God and His Word. I turn on some precious worship music and I turn it up loud and high. And if I'm riding down the car, it looks really weird. Somebody riding down the road crying and snot bubbles blowing out. Because I find that if I return to God in worship and I go back to the basics and I'm reminded of what my Jesus has done for me, oh, everything begins to shift and turn around in my life. I'm not the poor person I thought I was. 
the storm clouds break and I can look on into the future and see that God has control of everything. He's done a good work in my life. I could never repay Him for what He's given me. And I get the privilege every day to stand and preach His glorious gospel. Who am I to be ungrateful? I'm lower than the low. But God has chosen me to be a recipient of all these inheritance blessings. And my whole day is changed when I'm reminded of the fact that I have a Jesus. I have a gospel. I have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So I don't care what happens on Wednesday, January the 20th. I don't care what they do in Washington, D.C. or in my nation. How far it goes into the darkness. I've got Jesus and these precious promises to hold on to. Because friend... This is the closest this boy's ever going to get to hell. I'm going to heaven with my Jesus. Amen. And when you have that gospel gratitude in your life, you realize, you know what? People ask me, they say, Derek, how you doing? Standard response. A lot better than what I deserve. I recently came across a testimony of a man, U.S. Marine Corps General Charles Krulak. Listen to how powerful gratitude can be in your life. For much of his life, Charles was an unbeliever. He was fine with religion, but really thought it was a crutch for weak people. You ever heard that before? But that all changed when Charles was shipped off to fight in the Vietnam War. He said in Vietnam, he met a man there who was the real deal. I mean, truly born again. A child of God. His name was John Listerman. Here's what he wrote. He said, on a December morning in 1965, John and I went to war. John Listerman's war lasted one day. We were on patrol moving down a trail through the jungle and we ran into an ambush. John took the first round, a 50 caliber bullet, right in his kneecap. The force of the blow threw him up in the air. As he was dropping down, a second round hit him in the right side below the heart. I was wounded, he said, but not nearly as bad as my friend John. I saw him about 30 meters away with his leg blown off. I crawled across the jungle floor, he said, to get to my friend I wanted to be there for him in his last moments. As I crawled over to him, I said, John, are you okay? Can I do anything? He said, through the blood and the chaos, he said, how you doing, Chuck? Are you okay? I said, yes, sir. I'm fine. He said, are my men safe? I said, John, your men are okay. At that point, he said, John Listerman turned and looked to the sky and repeated this over and over again. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a beautiful family. Thank you, Lord. I'm coming to see you soon. Charles Kulak was utterly dumbfounded. He said this. He said, how could a dying man on a battlefield express gratitude as his blood was leaching out onto the ground? 
And yet this man had peace that I could not fathom. He said, after the battle subsided, I was so affected by that testimony of gratitude. He said, I sought out a chaplain and asked him, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Gratitude changes everything, doesn't it? When you realize what you already have in Jesus Christ, the whole world looks different, doesn't it? Let's pray. And let's ask God to give us that gospel gratitude every day.